Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgbeer. Hello and welcome. Joining me today to share the 10 best spiritual books that influenced him the most on his life path is medical philosopher, homeopath, Aikidoist, Qigong practitioner and author, Jerry Cantor, who writes the kind of books that I personally like to draw attention to, like The Toxic Relationship Cure, which reveals how little-known natural medicines can relieve mental, emotional and physical damage from toxic and unhealthy relationships, The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness, and his latest release, Sane Asylums, the success of homeopathy before psychiatry lost its mind. I love that title, and we'll discuss that in a little greater depth later on in the show. But first, a little bit about Jerry. He is faculty member of the Ontario College of Homeopathic Medicine, and he was the first acupuncturist to receive an academic appointment at Harvard Medical School's Department of Anesthesiology. Jerry Cantor, welcome. Thank you so much, Sandy. A pleasure to be here. Uh, pleasure to have you. So tell us a little bit about what books mean to you and the 10 best that have appeared on your list, why you've chosen these 10. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, books mean a lot to me. Um, the books I've chosen it was quite a, quite a fun assignment because um, it include one of them is a chess book, which I'll make a small case for you. People, many people are, many more people are playing chess these days than, than before, but uh, I'll make the case for that book as well. Um, shall I just go through them a little bit? No, no, we'll get to those in a minute. Oh, I want to okay. know a little bit, a little bit about, um, about, you know, the role that books have played in your life and how challenging or easy it was to, you know, distill your list down to 10. Hmm. It wasn't that hard because the books I picked really jump out, just jumped out of me. Is basically I've some of them, which are oracles like the I Ching, are just practically part of my DNA. Uh, I've just used them so much that uh, you get to a point where you internalize its logic and you don't even need to use it anymore. The same hexagrams would continue coming up for me, <laughs> no matter what I asked. Um, some of them have been absolutely uh, indispensable for my career. Some of the homeopathy texts, um, some of them are just a, a uh, both reflect my orientation to to wisdom, but also you know deepen it very very much. Um, they're they're just neutral, uh, spiritual food for me. They have uh, I, I could not possibly become who I who I am without having having had them in my life. Books are absolutely fantastic. Well, tell me this. Your career, I mean, Aikidoist, uh, Qigong, uh, homeopathy, um, the books, and some of your books are on those subjects, as you said. Did the books turn you on to those uh, as, a, as a career, or was it because you had the career that you then read those books? Yeah, okay. So uh, in college, I was a philosophy student, and I was also, well, uh, okay. I was such a hippie when I was young. Um, I really drifted. I didn't think I had any responsibility for making choices in my life. I thought things would come to me on their own. I was a dedicated Taoist in that sense. And um, the Western philosopher that, that fit that bill was also Spinoza. So in college, I wrote one paper after another comparing Spinoza and, uh, and Taoism. Um, and yeah, I, I drifted along. That brought me into contact with other Taoist texts like the Tao Te Ching and and uh, and uh, the Book of Changes, which we can talk about later on. 
Um, okay, but here's something interesting. So in, in, as, a philo- as a philosophy student, um, I did finally get turned on to something, but I had absolutely no clue what, what it could possibly be good for. So this was uh, academic phenomenology, completely made sense to me, which was a matter of uh, in analyzing phenomena without you know, trying to factor out your own biases, filter them out, not getting rid of them, but examining them so that you know <clears throat> how interactively your own mindset but interacts with your perceptions. And I was very good at that. I, would, I wrote the highest, best graded papers I got in college were when I was trying to do phenomenological analyses of things. And it took me 30 years to find out what that was good for. Absolutely. Uh, there's no career. I, 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 uh, could not, I decided I was not going to go to become a, an academic philosopher. And then I had many, many jobs, at least 30 um, I became an acupuncturist, but it was only when I became a homeopath that I realized, oh my God, the early phenomenology books I read um, absolutely um, facilitated my development as, as a homeopath. That's exactly the orientation that was needed. So that's probably the best example I can give you. Uh, and those books were Merleau-Ponty, um, William, William James's writings in Radical Empiricism were the very closest thing to phenomenology in the Western, in the Western, uh, in the United States tradition, American tradition, but they just had a huge impact on me, and I, I just grooved on them, loved, loved how that, how that worked, and I found myself consciously and unconsciously emulating those types of analysis. Do you remember the first book that really lit up your mind, changed your life, pointed you in a particular direction? Wow. Um, let me think about that. Uh, I suppose, <laughs> kind of a dry example, but um, uh, Immanuel Kant, Immanuel Kant, when I studied him in philosophy, just such uh, um, an amazing idea. Of course, he was very dry, very difficult to read, but the idea that there was an interface between oneself and, and, the, uh, and the external the thing in itself, um, that lit me up. Uh, I don't think Kant's a great example of that. <laughs> it's uh, it's not, not all that useful. It's very, very academic, and he was a very dry, routinized man. Um, but that was sort of a template for my entry into the, the nature-based uh, interaction types of thoughts, like in uh, David Abrams' book, uh, The Spell of the Sensuous. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, I guess spiritual books. I mean, Lit up a very beautiful, simple book, which is on my on my list, which is uh, um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, made a huge impression on me. Um, I mean, some somehow I, I had to find my way into ha- taking responsibility for my life and and not not drifting along like a leaf in a stream. And so, um, I'm not sure I can credit a book for that. It was just something that did finally happen. You have to make a commitment sometime in life. But uh, most of the books, they allowed me to think this way and pursue, pursue this orientation as far as I possibly could until I was forced to make some commitments. And then once, once you get into the realm of, of well, I have to make, commit myself to something, then like, the context for that would be existentialist books, which have become very interesting for me. And uh, especially now in this book I'm, I'm bringing out in October, which is completely about existential quandaries and how they promote illness. So the distinction I'm making is between being so in the flow of things and uh, letting understandings come to you and, you know, through uh, oracular, oracular knowledge or, or, or signs and, and actually taking a stand and making, deciding something. That was a big problem for me. I, I did not want to make a commitment to any particular profession. I wanted it all to be thrust on me. And actually, that is exactly what happened. I wound up not having to make the choice. The choice was made for me. Um, from powers outside myself. Mm. Well, let's talk about your first book because this is one that people are always turning to for decision-making, and that is um, the I Ching, the Book of Changes, Book of Oikos. Um, you know, it's just 3,000 years old, um, newer in the West, but my goodness, has it become such a valuable book for so many people. Tell us when you first came across it. I think um, someone maybe just threw the coins for me before I ever opened the book up. 
said, uh, I'll do a reading for you. And it was mighty, might have been a time when I was being exposed to the tarot as well. Um, a good friend of mine showed me, showed me how that worked. That, that said it was originally done with, with, with stalks. He didn't have stalks. Mm-hmm. We did coins. And so we threw them and, and then would look up the hexagrams in the book. And, and my God, it was, it was so interesting. I, it had to, because, of course, you had to decipher it. It was not, it was never, it's never a simple answer that you get. You get, simply get a, a direction of um, a description of a situation. Now, the number of hexagrams, the basic number is 64. So that ties into my, my, uh, my love of chess. There are 64 squares on the chessboard. Someone once did an analysis of the, of the, of the, of the 64 hexagrams, determining how many are positive and how many are negative. Uh, and I find that very important if, when, when, if you're trying to decide whether you're a, an optimist or a pessimist. We carry these orientations around. I think three-fourths of them are positive. So this is, this is, if, if the 64 hexagrams are a description of every possible situation in the universe, which I would argue for, it's possible, then um, that would predispose someone uh, to be optimistic. Um, we're always debating when, how, how powerful the devil is in the world. You know, does the devil rule things? And um, that's one aspect of the, of, the, of the I Ching. Of course, when you combine the, you know, the way you get the infinite number of subtle readings is when you combine um, the hexagrams and you, you, you get two when there are changing lines. And then you get sort of this... this uh, um, subtext to the one that you threw it's like it's like an astrology i guess i'm not good at that uh, i'm not an astrologer you know the sun and the moon sign um but uh you asked me the first time i i found that yeah so once once that happened i was exposed to the book and started reading them it's not a book you read from cover to cover it's a book that you you know you, you be, you're very interactive with you throw the coins mm-hmm. in, in important situations and there have been in very critical situations in my life where i i absolutely was straddling two sides of a question and I had to get uh, an answer, have it looked at from some other way. And as I said before, often I would get the same hexagrams over and over again. And that in itself is, is uh, very revelatory. It means you know, that's, a, that's some, some, some source, some very objective source telling you this is what you have to work on in your life. Mm-hmm. And there are some hexagrams I, I mean, I know I'll never throw, it's, or it seems I will never throw them. Um, so I should actually investigate those as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are books that correlate the I Ching with the genetic code too, and, and uh, that is a very interesting. Uh, <laughs> that's a very interesting enterprise. I should really look at, look into that a lot more. But it's right now it's over my outside my pay grade. Well, I think that um, human design uh, has a little bit of the I Ching as well as astrology in it, and uh, I found that to be very very interesting. Um, very enlightening as well. But let's move on to your next book, which is um, one of your uh, loves, Selected Chess Games of Mikhail Tal uh, by yeah, I... Jay Hashton. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've always loved chess, and it's part of be, partly because I have a competitive nature. Uh, unfortunately, with, with chess, I... I find that the despair, the, the horror of losing is, you know, completely outweighs the joy of winning. Um, so that's difficult for me. But nowadays, especially the games of Tal um, are just incredibly inspirational. Um, he was a combinatorial genius, a great, great attacking player. But it was his, um, his adventuresome, his, his courage and the absolute magic he was able to conjure from this game, which is supposedly all about logic and with very little luck involved. Um, he would create complications for the, it would seem because we didn't have his incredible power that they were just, just random, like throwing a monkey wrench into, into life and seeing what would happen. But he, there was more to it than that. He had some kind of, some kind of idea, some magical idea that this was going to turn out well, a deep kind of optimism and the complications that ensued. Very few people could, could keep up with them. And so they invariably made a mistake. The ar- argument in chess these d- days is, well, were tall sacrifices sound. He would sacrifice pieces left and right. And it was just uh, a fireworks. But the smoke would clear, the dust would settle, and somehow he had a better position at the end of these long things that he could not possibly have calculated. But uh, there's just an absolute magic going over, especially his, his early games. And um, I don't know any chess player who, who, doesn't, who doesn't relish them. Later on, when other players, he became world champion. 
other players um, caught on to how how he liked to attack. He they had to trans, transform chess to to adapt to adapt to him and devise very sophisticated defensive strategies. He he in turn um, adapted as well, and he became more of a positional player and was very very strong up to the very end of his life. But it's just the joy of his games. Um, when you play chess and you go over games, every you can almost tell from the moves who was playing playing who was playing the pieces, even if you don't didn't know, based on on the personality that comes out of that. And I think the ordinary person would not a non-playing chess player would not know that your personality could come out um, in the kind of ways you solve position the, the, the challenges that certain positions pose to you. Um, so maybe what I've said will inspire some people to get get involved with chess. If you if you do, um, you whether you like it or not, you're going to in, engage with the games of Mikhail Tal. Mm. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned this uh, third book earlier, and that is Zen Mind: Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Boshi. Yes, it's not a long book. It's just a very very beautiful book. The most perfect statement about how to inhabit the moment, how small things, everything can and might require your personal attention. And I actually would relate that to homeopathy as well, which I do. I never know ahead of time what is going to matter to me in, in, in my ultimate prescription. I certainly can't tell the person what I want to hear. I mean, I, I can direct them slightly, but um, my p- posture in taking somebody's case is very much the way Suzuki Roshi describes inhabiting the moment. You know, on one of the pages of that simple little book, for no particular reason, um, there's a perfect drawing of a fly sitting on the page. It's never explained, <laughs> never, never referred to, but that's a that's both that's a real ex, you know emblem of what that book is about. Um, most of the time, if a fly appears on our book while we're reading, and we flick it off and don't give it any thought. But you can't do that with that particular page. You have to think, well, well that's interesting. There's a fly here, and think about the nature of the fly and why it's landed on our book at this particular moment. And that spirit inhabits my case taking. Um, I'll be sitting there, and someone will say something very casually, and I'll, uh, you know, and I'll just jump out of my chair because there's something about that that I, I'm, I'm attuned to. I, I recognize it's important. It's usually in proportion to how unimportant the person thinks it is. Mm, um, yeah. So, and when you inhabit the moment, you can make your own determination of what can matter, and it's very different from what conventions will. Uh, suggest mm. so and of course that is that is what comes out i do meditate i do practice zazen meditation and that's a that's a that's a discipline where you sit very quietly and you let thoughts appear as they appear uh you don't fight them but you and uh you find yourself fighting them and you become aware of yourself fighting them so it's a study of the mind you're, you're actually um being present with your own mind and, and learning from it uh, it's not about it. Of course, the goal is to empty your mind, but that's actually not what you're trying to do. Your, your, your goal is to become an observer of your own mind and, to, and underneath that to find out how that um, influences the reality of the, any particular situation. So did you come up with any um, reason why that fly is in the book? <laughs> There's not going to be one reason, and it will be it will vary totally from individual to an individual. And what's uh, your reason? My reason? Pay your attention. Interpretation. To Pay attention. Pay attention to what you never know what's going to matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, um, what's so trivial about a fly? A fly could be as important as anything else. It has its most incredible organization. How the hell does it fly? To tell you the truth, how does it get from here to there? What does it want to do? I've asked dozens of questions about flies. Why do we why do we find them uh, uh, annoying? There's actually a remedy made from fly called muska, um, and I can tell you uh, if I rec- recollect all the aspects of it. You know what what the consciousness of the fly is based on the provings of, in homeopathy. I mean, you can go on endlessly. There's no bottom to it. And I would like to ask the artist who made that book why he or she chose that particular page to draw the fly. There's many things we can talk about with that. Mm, actually, there's yeah. no limit to it. <laughs> Well, let's move on. The number four book is The Collective Writings of Emmanuel Swedenborg by Emmanuel Swedenborg. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, Emmanuel Swedenborg, um, an incredibly great genius. He actually lived at the same time as Isaac Newton. And uh, if I lived another few lifetimes, I'd try to write a novel pretending that that they met. 
Um, no two greater geniuses could possibly have inhabited the same length of time. He was an inventor um, of many mining, um, mining devices. Just, um, he was a tremendous scientist and one, uh, uh, very famous in his time. And one, at one point he said, you know, I've got a bigger question to ask. What is the soul? Where is the soul? And he began these deep investigations into human anatomy looking for the soul. And actually what he wound up doing um, was what I would call a work of, uh, was performing the earliest version of really profound phenomenology. And I have here um, a, a book physio called Physiological Correspondences by John Worcester. And these are, this is a compilation of Swedenborg's writings specifically on terms of a human anatomy as he was trying to find out what the, what the uh, spiritual purpose of, of, of every body part was. And I should say what happened with Swedenborg, how he, he lost credibility when the conventional scientific community, uh, they considered that he went off the deep end because he became so mystical. He in invented a kind of meditation that allowed him to go on these very profound spiritual journeys into heaven, into hell. Um, he was a very, very powerful clairvoyant and psychic. And his view of, of God, the Godhead, was something like in the Jewish Kabbalah which is that the God is shaped like a, like a man, a great man. And within that, that spiritual being, every part of that, of that being is inhabited by angels who perform a certain kind of a work. And so if you knew the kind of work that the angels of the plura or the liver were doing, then you could, uh, and if you had a problem in your plura or your liver, you could ask those angels what they were doing and you would get an insight into what your, the person that you're dealing with, what their problem was. <laughs> this to me is phenom phenomenology. Um, he was the he he was so powerful in the 1800s uh, in America. He was he's, he was a huge influence on the transcendentalists, and um, the transcendentalists were all you know, very much into homeopathy. And Swedenborg was considered as the godfather of homeopathy for this idea of as above, so below, which is what I was trying to describe before. Whereas if you knew the angels of what, what the jobs were of, of angels in one particular part of the body, they have a certain spiritual task. Then if you have a problem in that, in that, in that part of your body, um, that spiritual task would be the subtext for what your, your problem would be. So this is uh, exactly where I live. And when I do homeopathy, I'm, I'm trying to interpret people's symptoms. I do it in spiritual terms. Actually, just before we came on, I took a look at uh, spiritual correspondences again. And I looked at looked at the plura, it sort of jumped out at me, reading what the what the problems in the plura are. Because a couple of years ago, I had a problem in my plura, and I wound up taking a remedy called Senega. And the theme of Senega is alienation. And I'm the child of Holocaust surviving parents, and I've often had a problem with feeling like I belong. And Senega cleared up a long a long problem I had, and also made me feel much more part of the human race. And so I'm just reading again here exactly what I'm talking about, how Swedenborg's understanding of the spiritual purpose of the plura is a subtext for my, my particular problem, and it's, it's making sense. I don't want to go into it, but um, if, if you, you do this kind of work, you would see that this is, this is a, a legitimate form of investigation, and um, it enlightened me even just before we started talking. Um, but Swedenborg was about many, many things, and he wrote so many books that their libraries were, were created for him, an entire school of a religion. He wasn't trying to create a religion, but Swedenborgianism was such a, was, was a, became a religion in honor of him. And there are libraries which contain nothing but his works. He was incredibly prolific. He's a little bit difficult to read, um, but his orientation that, um, you, know, there, that, you know, this idea of as above, so below was hugely important. I've created a kind of a, a parallel uh, notion, which is as within, so without. Yeah. Sometimes I can, I can not, I can, for example, I can describe the cancer process in, in human beings as uh, being ex ex externalized in various forms of our literature. And uh, it's too much to go into now, but it is in my books. But mm -hmm. again, that's an inversion of, uh, and probably this, just another, another version of Swedenborg's own principle. Yeah. So book number five is Homeopathy and the Elements by Jen Shulton. Um, and you said that Shulton has done homeopaths an invaluable service. Tell us why. 
Yeah, now I just pulled it off my shelf here. Um, well, <laughs> he's a crazy man, but he's an ge absolute genius, what he does. He looked at the t charts. Basically, he looked at the table of periodic elements and how they are organized and then figured out phenomenologically, again, what the themes are of the, of the, uh, of the horizontal lines as they are crossed by the vertical lines. So just as when, uh, you know, when elements were missing from the table, people could predict what the, what the properties of the, of the element would be once it was plugged in there, uh, you can kind of do the same. He could do kind of the same thing. Once you knew that the ferrum line across the, uh, across the table where the ferrum is in right smack in the middle, all those remedies, all those elements there, if they are turned into remedies, would represent the theme of work. Whether we are prepared to work, whether we're just we're, we're on our way uh, to being fulfilled in work, where, whether we're at the epitome of our abilities with regard to our career or work, if we're in decline, if we're on the outside, and this is, these are themes that go across um, the the periodic table according to 18, 18 stages, basically. Um, <laughs> this is hard to describe. Um, you know, with with that element at the center. The silver, the silver series, which is another line, that's all about creativity. All those remedies, all those elements reflect an issue having to do with creativity. Um, the, the line which has aurum or gold in the middle of it is all about responsibility. And uh, I find that this is a cosmological system that is very, very empirical. You can get to test it out um, with your prescription. And by the way, this is another theme I, I, should, I should mention to you coming from philosophy. My problem with philosophy, why I dropped out, was that the great systems were all very verbal and very articulate and beautiful, but they talked past each other. You couldn't really test out metaphysics against logical positivism. They were just completely opposite. They had, they had no interrelation. So what drove me in my, in my, not just the books I read, but in my practices, was engaging in, with practices that were, that were philosophical, but that you could actually have something to test out. Aikido is a perfect example of that. In Aikido, you can blend with someone's energy and lead it slightly. If you succeed in doing that, you can throw the person. Uh, if you can't, then you can't. You, it's like an axiom that you're, you're, you're reproving. Acupuncture also is, 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 a, is, a, is a dialogue. It's um, um, very much like what people, when they study the Talmud, um, they wind up ar arguing something back and forth, back and forth, and then finally they come up with a certain judgment. In acupuncture, you look at the tongue, you feel the pulse, and eventually you blame one organ. Oh, the kidneys are weak, the livers are strong. And then, but then you get to test it out. You get to test it out. It's completely metaphysical, but you get to test it out. Um, if your, prescri if your pre prescription is correct, that validates your philosophical proposition. Mm -hmm. um, homeopathy, again, also is, is a way of, of validating, uh, can be validated, validating phenomenology. If my analysis of the, of the phenomenon of a person is correct, then um, my prescription will, will, be, will be borne out. If, it's, if, if, if it doesn't work, then my analysis was wrong. Maybe I was impure in some way and I projected something onto the person that I should not have projected, and so on and so forth. In any case, I like philosophy. I'm very drawn to that, but it should be able to prove itself out. In, in, the, in American philosophy, this was completely embedded in, in William James's pragmatism. It was very well expressed by his, his books on pragmatism. Hmm. Well, we are, are close to taking a break now. So um, we're only five books in. We've still got uh, another, um, yeah, another five to go. Um, so we'll speed it up when we come back because I really do want to get to talking about sane asylums. The information that you've shared there is, uh, is definitely worth hearing. So we're going to take a short break now and we'll be back in a few minutes. So don't go away. Om Times TV. Maya Angelou once said that there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, and when I'm not hosting Om Times Media's flagship radio show, What Is Going On, and the No BS Spiritual Book Club, I help people share their untold stories. Books are my life, my joy, and my passion. And there is no greater reward than helping aspiring writers get their books out of their heads and into the hands of those who are waiting to read them. If you feel that you have a book in you, but don't know where to begin, visit sedgebeer.com. 
Click on the Work With Me tab and find out how my experience helping others tell their stories might be just what you've been looking for. That's sedgebeer.com, S-E-D-G-B-E-E-R.com. Imagine becoming a super influencer. Reinvent yourself, invest in your brand, and then manifest your success with a robust, spheric approach. Own Times Media and Broadcasting offers a unique and multifaceted way to become the spiritual and conscious influencer you deserve to be by putting your message across our powerful platform with its proven record of integrity and excellence. Through our produced shows, Own Times offers the opportunity to become a social media TV personality, a radio show host, an Own Times magazine columnist, and a syndicated podcaster, all in one shot. By live streaming your show on Ohm Times TV and broadcasting it across the extensive Ohm Times radio and TV networks, you become more than a host. You become an ambassador and a force for positive change. Ohm Times, open yourself to the possibilities. There are 16 million children struggling with hunger in America. That's one in five daughters, sons, neighbors, and classmates who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Yet billions of pounds of good food go to waste every year. It's time we do something about it. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks that helps provide meals to millions of kids and families in need. Visit feedingamerica.org to help them feed even more. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Welcome back. Jerry Cantor, book number six, Wondrous Order, Systematic Table of Homeopathic Plant Remedies by Mikhail Yekia. Yeah, um, it's kind of, there's kind of an arms race going on in the homeopathy community in terms of analyzing plant remedies. Um, Mikhail Yakir is a botanist, and her book is just stunningly beautiful attempt to do that. Um, she uses a form of classification that was developed by a man called Cronquist. And again, what she manages to do based on, on the development of the plants is to elicit the psychological or the existential theme that pertains there um, to that particular plant based on its, on its level of development. It's a stunning book, uh, and I, I refer to it quite a bit. Um, very, very beautiful book, even if you're not a homeopath. And that's kind of all I'll say about that, because you'd have to be a homeopath to understand and appreciate it even further. Okay. Well, number seven, you also mentioned earlier, The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. Yeah. Um, what a beautiful book, written in 1997. Um, you know, all these, all my, I guess all my references are, have something in common, which is this idea of uh, connection with nature, uh, looking at things from the standpoint of obliterating the distinction between oneself the inner self and the outer self. And uh, Abrams' book just does that absolutely marvelously with regard to, to language. Um, it is a, 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 these two books, by the way, is, you know, um, David Abrams' book and the Phenomenology Perception, they have exactly the same agenda, except one is doing it from an, an academic perspective and Abrams is doing it from his experience in, in the tropics with, with, uh, with, um, with native peoples, with, with magic, with shamanism. Um, it's an overwhelmingly wonderful book to read, uh, and I, I would do it a disservice to it trying to describe it anything beyond that. But it will change you to read it. So book number eight, which you just mentioned, Phenomenology of Perception by Maurice Merleau-Ponty, um, you said that they both have the same agenda. What is that agenda? Yeah, it's, uh, I would say, well, in academic terms, it's, it's phenomenology, um, which is trying to understand a situation, understand life without any kind of preconceived notion of what it is. And we, we, you know, that, that sounds on the one hand very simplistic, but when you really think about all the ways in which we don't do that, when we form medical diagnoses, when we meet somebody, when we, when we, we, we approach almost everything, especially in the West, with a preconceived notion, a, a, a judgmental perspective, um, in academic philosophy, that matters because you're trying to establish what the truth is. And if you can't find out what the truth of something is, well, then create a model to explain why, why you can't or what the parameters of something might be that are truthful. 
So again, that sound, <laughs> sounds kind of abstract. You put it into action when you do something like homeopathy. Um, in, in David Abrams' stance, you put it into action when you get a vision based on your interaction with nature that is then either fulfilled or something propels you to do something commensurate with it. Um, you know, so that could be medically, that could be spiritually, that could be politically. Understanding a situation, you know, getting, getting signals from, from the natural world. It sound, when I say it, it sounds, you know, in a Western context, like that's something spooky. But in fact, that is our heritage. We have always been part of nature. Yes. And our interaction with it is, is, is completely built into, into, into us. There is no us. We are part of, of everything. I feel like an idiot trying to describe this. He, he, he does it a lot better than I can at this moment. And I just would recommend anybody read that, that, read that book. Okay, so book number nine is The Reflexive Universe by Arthur Young, who was a mathematician and an engineer, and as you say, a practical man and an astrologer too. Yeah, I will do him a tremendous disservice by trying to describe what he's doing too. But frankly, um, you could wipe out the entire pantheon of philosophers, as far as I'm concerned, and just teach what he has done. Um, because again, he... he, he, he his ideas can be tested out. They come from within. His, his notion of process. Um, oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I, I will do him a disservice by trying to describe what he does. Um, okay, so tell me this. You say that he is a delver into myths and dreams. What is he delver yeah, a delver. Well, again, again, we have this idea that, um, you know, we have intu intuitions and, and external knowledge are separate. And we have this notion that uh, we can't, for example, we cannot say that anything in science, any scientific phenomenon is purposive, has a purpose. That's teleological means as an end purpose. That's a dirty word in science. Um, and yet... Uh, his investigations uh, show uh, that you actually can integrate internal knowledge with external external knowledge to a good advantage. Um, you know, it's one of these books I promised myself I need to read again. I, I mine is my mark, copy is completely marked up, um, but he was he does find these purposive patterns <coughs> in in evolution in in development. Um, he's just um, you know I I let's see. <laughs> this is why this book has to be read and discussed over a period of several years. Also, the success of one, the geometry of meaning. Um, but yeah, uh, dreams play into it. It's just, uh, again this idea of int our interactivity with the world. You know, it counts for something. Um, and there are levels of organization uh, going from the atom to human beings. Let's let me see if I can try to give a give a shot at this through this chart. Well, we need we need to move on now, Jerry. Let's just say <laughs> Please, that yeah. something that you wrote in your description probably is one of the most important things. Is that he thought through what may be the first theory to unify consciousness, physics, and the life sciences. Yes, that's right. Mm. Uh, let's leave it at that, and people should could look at it. Uh, there's no way I can possibly summarize it, but that is the case. And if you go through that book, you'll see he he has actually accomplished something that not only no one else has has done, but has even attempted. Mm. Yeah. So number ten, Yiddish Cop, creative problem solving in Jewish <laughs> learning, law, and humor by Nilton Bonder. Yeah. Um, tell me about this one. Yeah, that's a lot easier to talk about. That's a lot, lot easier. Um, and if you want to get maybe any one book and want to read it in a, you know, over the course of a, a couple of days, this would be the one. Um, yeah, he breaks uh, analysis of situations into uh, four categories. There's the informational level, uh, where we approach problems literally and in response to the obvious. Um, if I want to buy a carton of milk, is there milk at the supermarket? <laughs> Something like that. Um, the level of understanding. Um, well, this is a little bit more complex. We need to do some some uh, some dialogue. We need to do, you know investigate something that would be involve detective work, um, proper questioning. 
um, you know, taking a certain standard of the world, but the information can be gotten by a bit of a deeper analysis. Then there's the level of wisdom, which is intuition. Um, and all of us have intuitions. Uh, they can be wrong, but if you center yourself and you can, you can, you can make a, a, a often a, a, a reasonable choice in a situation, you can, you can do something that is not, not completely obvious, but uh, a way, as a way of solving a problem. And then there's reverence. Now, that's a, that's a very interesting category, this reverence. Um, the hidden reality behind appearances. This is where we take risks to make commitments. That's why I was. I, I think that uh, Mikhail Tal's chess games um, represent a knowledge at the level of reference, reverence. But the reason what really appeals to me is every once in a while you get into a situation where you throw up your hands and you say, oh my God, I am completely out of options. I have no idea what to do. Um, I am really lost. Uh, well, what do you do then? Do you say that's the end of it? And, but in a state of reverence, something special comes, something special usually comes. Um, when you make yourself completely vulnerable and open, that's the level of knowledge there. And uh, Milton Bonder has extracted that from the Judaic tradition. Uh, I'm not really well read. Uh, I'm, I'm not deeply read in, 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 in in Kabbalah or in Judaism, but I recognize this is valid and it's very encouraging. As I say, it's kind of related to games of Mikhail Tal. Some, something in him is playing at that, at that level whereby you can enter a completely chaotic situation in a spirit of reverence and something special will happen. And especially these days, uh, I take refuge in that um, as a way of, of, of offsetting the, this kind of uh, discouragement and despair that we can feel. Uh, in these in these particular times. Anyway, that's a very simple breakdown. Very small. It's a great if you want a book uh, to uh, to make sense of things at least to some degree, and um, <laughs> short, sweet, and simple, but also very deep. I would recommend that book because it's funny too, and it's just a, a great little reference. I like those categories. Mm, good. Okay. Well, that's your ten best list. Now let's talk about you. Um, you. Uh, Refer to yourself in your keywords as a medical philosopher. What is that? Well, uh, yeah, uh, as I was saying before, my way of, of working reflects my background in philosophy, but I'm not any different from any other homeopath in that regard. But um, I've also made it my business to try to integrate the various systems. And because it was just frustrating to me to hear people come and say, Jerry, what's the difference between acupuncture and homeopathy? Or what's what I've got such and such a diagnosis. How do you deal with this? How is, what's the Chinese version of this? Or what can you take a uh, homeopathic remedy at the same time that you're doing acupuncture? <clears throat> so my first book, um, I worked something out, which I, th I think is kind of special. It's called Interpreting Chronic Illness. And in that book, I took uh, a component of traditional Chinese medicine called the five element system. Uh, or five phases system, and I, I found a way to use that as a template for organizing the Materia Medica of homeopathic remedies, and at the same time, looking at chronic diseases one by one that I could think about, chronic illnesses, and analyzing them um, not just according to how they would appear in traditional Chinese medicine diagnosis, but also with the homeopathic remedy that would represent that particular breakdown, but also able to take features of the, of the medical diagnosis and also organize those according to my same template. And the template I call sense dimensional analysis. In the five element system of Chinese medicine, the senses, the five senses have a position there, but it's not really prominent. So to make my, create my bridge, I made my version of the five elements um, rooted in the five senses. And I also made a little adjustment in how they were represented. Um, so this is what I mean by being a medical philosopher. It's, it's, okay. it's very much like something that Arthur Young would do. Um, it's, it's a way of creating a concise model. And for me, models, you will never get absolute truth in anything because everything is changing all the time. Uh, and our perceptions and understandings are interactive with changings of situations. The best we can do is create models and constantly fine-tune them. So I'm a philosopher in that I try to continually to create good models and to refine them so they are explanatory. 
Medically, also, people benefit very much, not just from having themselves, their health improved, but having their, situa- their conditions explained to them, which takes the fear out of that, fear away, uh, de- deconstructed as, philoso- as existential problems that they're grappling with that respects the situation that they are in. You're not going to get a special pill from me that makes everything go away. That's not what's going to happen. You're going to get a remedy that was going to actually amplify for temporarily the issue that they're struggling with so that they can get to the other side of it and gain perspective. Uh, and part of my way of doing that involves the system that I've, I've evolved that is so highly explanatory. Again, there's no such thing as absolute truth. I, I, I you know, don't believe in that. But a, a model that can both uh, be descriptive and push somebody on the, push someone on their own into a, a greater understanding of things. I want to talk about um, your book, Sane Asylums, your most recent book, because I think that the information you share there is something that everybody needs to hear. The subtitle is The Success of Homeopathy Before Psychiatry Lost Its Mind. And the book reveals the astonishing suppressed history of homeopathic psychiatry. And you actually uh, reveal how back in the 1800s and early 1900s, homeopathy was not only respected, but there were a thousand homeopathic pharmacies, a hundred homeopathic hospitals, and 22 homeopathic medical schools throughout the USA, and thousands, thousands upon thousands of documented successful outcomes in treating mental illness. Now, given the epidemic that we have around the world today with mental illness, what happened? Why do we not know more about the homeopathic approach to mental illness today? It's uh, strictly economic. Um, Homeopathic remedies are not patented, whereas pharmaceuticals are. So the profit motive is is built into pharmaceutical medicine. those medicines are harmful. Uh, the side effects are not simply side effects. Um, homeopathy has been pushed aside. Uh, it's a very the, the existence of the homeopathic asylums, uh, the great successes of it, are, are, are an inconvenient truth to the pharma, to the pharmaceutical industry, and they've gone to great lengths to obliterate uh, our knowledge of it. It's at the highest levels. I mean, I don't think of myself as a big conspiracy thinker, but. For example, the, the top medical school uh, department of history, history of medical medicine is at Johns Hopkins University. And they've for years putting, been putting out these books, not, not written not by homeopaths, you know, campaigning that homeopathy was a sect, that it was a heresy, that it was unimportant. Um, I'm not a trained historian, but it was not that difficult, you know, delving to find out that this was completely the opposite. Uh, in my book, I pretend that I've discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls here, you know, but... Uh, uh, I have all the old texts. I have I have all the old journals. I went through it. It is completely different from how this has been portrayed. And the um, the downside of this is that we have lost uh, choice in medical in, in the care of, of of mental illness. It's it would be entirely different. If it was if it was treated homeopathically. Um, there are conditions that would ne- never existed before, like tardive dyskinesia, which are um, the direct results of of some of these some of these drugs. America has the worst, most horrific mental health statistics uh, around the world. Developing countries where there's not much, that much uh, conventional psychiatry do much better with it. This is not just me talking, but Robert Whitaker, who wrote a few books, has been, um, he's, uh, been very instrumental in bringing these things to light. And um, his books, Anatomy of an Epidemic and Mad in America, they yes. hang the pharmaceutical industry by their, absolutely their own information. Thomas Zaz, who was the, uh, a psychiatrist in the 60s, um, hugely respected, you know, made these points over and over, over again from the ins- inside the profession. Um, so, yeah, my, the, the drum that I'm beating is, uh, my God, I mean, you can attack homeopathy for uh, its science. You'd be wrong, but you can try. You can attack it for its ideology, also a bad idea. But for God's sakes, really, the history of it, I mean, this actually happened. Um, I have the books, the photog- photographs, the journals. Um, what I wrote there, it's an embarrassment that I had to write this. It should have been written by a team of historians. Yeah. Um, I did the best I could with it. I think it came out pretty well. But the story needs to be told so that people don't say, oh, my God, there's nothing to do that. My doctor said I have this, uh, you know, 
four or five times of bipolarity, and the only treatment is another drug that with those side effects. Now I've got tardive dyskinesia. Uh, give me, give me a drug for that. I mean, what else? There's nothing to do. Well, people like that, homeopaths like I have, me, have been have been marginalized um, to a degree that's itself crazy. The FDA, which has long designated homeopathic remedies as drugs, this is really crazy. Um, we didn't ask them to be. Well, maybe they were asked to be drugs. They were always were drugs. They have little. Uh, identification number on them. Now the FDA says, no, they don't work. Well, they have more official status than, than nutritional supplements and vitamins and, and, and herbs and their drugs. And now this FDA, which is, of course, owned by the pharmaceutical industry, is saying, no, no, don't use them. Uh, uh, they, they don't really work. It's nonsense. Hmm. The law of similars is part of the law of nature. And uh, going against that is like telling someone Getting back on the horse that threw them uh, is is not valid. You should have to have to do a randomized control study that that actually works. I mean, yeah. it's 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 it's, a, it's terrible when advanced place when common sense has has got to be got to be questioned. There's no question that the, the law of similars works. Something in a, in, a, in a minute amount will cure what it produces in a gross amount, and that has been that, that you don't have to demonstrate that over and over again. Yeah. Anyway, can you um, can you um, is there a remedy for every uh, form every mental health issue? I mean, obviously, I've known about remedies for anxiety and depression and some of those things. But when you're looking at certain things like um, OCD, perhaps severe OCD or Tourette's, a lot of children, certainly in England, teenagers are being diagnosed with Tourette's. That's become a bit of an ep epidemic. Can these things be addressed with homeopathy? They absolutely can be addressed. The answer to that is yes. Is there one particular remedy for every condition? I have to give a different answer because homeopathy is not diagnosis-driven. But I can, if I describe the profile of a particular remedy, you know, and then you would see, oh, so-and-so fits that. Like nine of the ten things you said about this, per this, this remedy fit this particular individual. If I describe it and only three, three or four fit, there might be a better remedy that fits that person better. Um, but I can give examples of, of you know, if you want to talk about Tourette's syndrome, um, I can, let's say, comparison between two remedies, okay? One would be, would be Tarantula, which is made from a spider venom. Um, both of those remedies would treat Tourette's, <laughs> but we're not treating the diagnosis, we're treating the individual. The Tarantula individual would have some very specific character, characteristics. They're very specific. They would be moved to move by music. They, have, they would make them jump. They would make them want to run around. They would tend to want to jump anyway, be very, very hyperactive. Their, 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 their uh, involuntary movements would invariably be destructive. Um, they would have peculiar eating habits. They might like something like, you know, uh, eat like a spider. They'll have to lick, want their food liquid, liquefied. They would, might have had very likely at the psychological level um, a, an unrequited love, or some, some kind of a, of a love grief. That would be the tarantula person. And a child, you, you know, they also, their spiders have, have superhuman qualities. They would have, <coughs> could be incredibly agile, very powerful. <coughs> well, that would be, you know, they would have someone who needs that remedy could easily be uh, judged as having Tourette's because they would say almost anything that comes out of their mouth. Now, another remedy that also treats Tourette's is anacardium. The anacardium individual is cursing. And they have a deep split in their personality. They have a good angel and a bad angel. They can be incredibly cruel on one side, and they can also be very vulnerable on the other. And their modes of eating are very specific. They will eat very, very fast, and they have to eat in order not to be constipated. It gets very specific, very, very specific. Mm. And if you want to go into the psychology of that state, it might have to do with the fact that they could not integrate the personalities of their parents. These are also all kind of... A, subtext for those particular remedies. I'm just giving you an example. There are other remedies too that I, I haven't, that I won't describe now that could also conceivably treat Tourette's and things like this. When you're dealing with a diagnosis, which is just a label, they can also be misrepresenting. They, what, what someone comes in here and I would say, that's not Tourette's, that's, that's something else. Or I'm, I'm not that I care about the label, but we always treat the individual, not, not the diagnosis. So would every homeopath have some knowledge of this. I mean, I've not heard a homeopath talk about it before. It's the first time I've ever heard 
about homeopathy and you know real mental illness and the history of it so i mean if somebody's listening and says okay i'd love to see you know a homeopath are there special homeopaths who deal purely with mental health issues or could they go to possibly anybody well here's the thing sandy um the word itself has been subject to mischaracterization. There are a lot of people who call themselves homeopaths who are not. Sometimes homeopathy is thought to be synonymous with gentle, anything gentle. That's not true. People think that anything holistic is homeopathic. That's not true. And another word that starts with H, herbs. I've had people come and say, yeah, I've done homeopathy, and it turns out they just took a bunch of herbs. And there are people who use homeopathy very casually as part of their naturopathic practice or something. They don't, they're not trained the way someone like myself or someone who's gone through the Council for Homeopathic Certification is trained or the North American Society of Homeopaths. There's a, there's a, there's a level of, of expertise you have to achieve to do what I'm talking about. But when, when you have that, we don't have specialists in homeopathy. It's one-stop it's one shopping. Um, in the descriptions I gave you of those two remedies, they have the pictures of them have mental, emotional, and physical characteristics. A homeopath has to recognize all of them. We're not breaking somebody up. This is not reductionist medicine. Um, so, well, yeah, so there's that. The other problem with treating mental illness today, which complicates things so much, is that people are so medicated. Um, we very seldom get somebody who's just purely in a particular state, uh, the way it was in, in, you know, earlier in the century or last century. People, we have to detoxify them from the, the, the substances that they're taking, which make, that creates creates uh, uh, actual side effects, you know, and, and we, have to, we have to eliminate that picture to find out what the, what the true picture is. And homeopathy has had to get much more sophisticated because there are remedies now which we have to employ to detoxify people uh, from these things in order to treat them the way we did do in, in the classical format. Mm. Sorry, it's such a complicated answer, but th there it is. But in short, people can speak to a homeopath about any problems that they have. Yes, they can. That's I would go definitely to somebody, an approach worth taking. Yes, and it would, should go to somebody who has either the CHC degree certification or the, N, N, uh, the NASH certification, for sure. That's the lowest. That would, be, that, was, that would be what I recommend. And are you still practicing as a homeopath? Could people contact you? <laughs> yeah, and unintended consequences of my writing all these books, I was, I'm trying to spend more time... Um, you know, writing and, and reaching a large audience is I am getting many more referrals than perhaps I can handle. So, but yeah, I do work long hours and I do, I do continue to enjoy the work. So if, if, and if I can't take someone, I will refer that person to, to someone. And can, can you consult work. remotely? Yes. Uh, through the COVID years, it's almost exclusively what I did. Skype or FaceTime or um, uh, Zoom, of course. You can see with this, the, the transmissions are, are pretty darn good. Um, I get quite a bit through this, and um, then I mail the remedy out or, or, drop, or drop ship it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time, but there is another one of your books that we must touch on, even if only very briefly, and that is Autism Reversal Toolbox. First of all, people are going to take that word reversal and um, have a lot of questions about it. Oh, dear. But we don't have time for lots of questions. So just very, very briefly, if you can give me, you know, just a few lines about what people will find in that book. Well, they'll find um, some of my philosophy, <laughs> how I think autism has evolved. It's not one particular cause. There's quite a few. Um, you'll, you'll get my Swedenborgian analysis of it. Uh, but it is a toolkit. It is basically for, uh, for practitioners. At the time that I wrote it, I... I I tried, I tried to, to describe every, t every remedy and every approach that I could think of in doing that kind of work. Um, I need, still could need, stand to Im improve on it, and there are other people who are, who are involved with the same, uh, same task, especially uh, Tone Jansen in, in, um, in Holland. Um, this is a very difficult thing to treat, and it's incredibly controversial yes. uh, even to talk about it. Uh, that book was censored. <laughs> frankly, when it first came out. Any book that had the word autism in it was censored. And this just gives you an idea of how, uh, how incredibly charged this topic is. But honestly, my God, I mean, where did this epidemic come from? There has to be some explanation for it. 
when I was young, there was nothing remotely like it. It was the rarest kind of thing. Suddenly to have, you know, one out of 14 boys being, being uh, so, uh, likely to be autistic, what an incredible tragedy this is that we're normalizing to a great degree. Oh, they're going to be very well suited for, to become uh, computer, computer engineers, that sort of thing. I mean, this is not right. This is something really the matter with that. And, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a topic of great concern, and it makes me very nervous to talk about it because it is so controversial. Mm. But people can read the book. They'll get my understanding of it, and we can go from there. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for adding your 10 best list to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's library of recommendations. And for more information about Jerry Cantor's work and books, visit his website at vitalforcehealthcare.com. That's it for this week. I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, and I'll be back at the same time next week with another 10 best interview for the No BS Spiritual Book Club. Till then, it's goodbye from me, and thank you again to Jerry Canton. Thank you so much, Sandy. That was a pleasure.